Kia ora, what's up everyone? I'm Jonathan and you're tuned in to the Honest Theology Podcast where the aim here is to have open and honest theological conversations about lots of different things and with guests who know a lot more about these things than I probably do. This is season two entitled The Struggles where each episode will dive into some topics and issues that many Christians tend to struggle with. Things that the church universal has struggled with throughout our history. And hopefully we'll be able to provide some insight, some perspectives, some comfort, and some encouragement along the way. And I'm really excited about what's in store, and honestly, I can't wait. So let's go. Actually, just before we jump into this episode, I just want to give a quick disclaimer here. This episode was not mastered to the same volume uh, of other episodes. And that's because uh, with two guests, I had to I had to uh, move to a more open space to record this one. And there's just a lot of open air uh, static sound in the room, which is unfortunate. And when you master the volume up to um, to a standard broadcasting level, it just amplifies that static. And it was just too much. To uh, it was just too distracting. It was just too much to listen to. So I made the decision to not master this episode, but what that means is the volume is going to be very, very low. So you'll need to turn the volume all the way up as you're listening to the interview, and then remember to turn it all the way back down when the music kicks back on. That should be a reminder, Uh, but you got to turn it back down. Otherwise, the next thing you listen to will blow out your eardrums. So um, yeah, it's unfortunate that that I had to do it this way, but I feel like this is the best way, uh, was the best option for the audio of this episode. Um, so with that in mind, go ahead and start turning it up now. Hey there, and welcome back to the Honest Theology Podcast. This is episode five of season two, The Struggles, looking at and discussing different things that Christians sometimes have or do struggle with. Today is very special because it's the first time I'm having two guests on the show at the same time, so we'll see how this goes. <laughs> but um, it occurred to me while talking with one of the guests earlier in the year about coming on uh, the show that her experience has been vastly different to others and to try and accommodate some of the variety of experience on this topic, I decided uh, to seek out another guest to offer insights from a slightly different perspective and from different lived experiences, etc. So our topic today, uh, and, and something that some Christians and some Christian traditions and denominations still struggle with, is women in ministry and leadership. And one of my guests is an ordained minister in the Methodist Church of New Zealand and is currently serving uh, the whole Methodist Church as the General Secretary of the Methodist Church of New Zealand. Uh, Welcome to the show, Tara Totari. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for that kind welcome. Yes, and my other guest today um, is the Location Lead and Lecturer in Education Department at Laidlaw College here in Christchurch. She also has a master's in theology related to this very topic via three specific women in the Bible. I'm sure we'll hear about that and how God uses them um, or used them in the Bible. She's also an artist who has put on uh, exhibits in the, with the theme of women in the Bible. And Welcome to the show, Miriam Fisher. Kia ora. Kia ora. Uh, so thank you both for joining me today. It's great to have you on the show Doing this part uh, with, 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 with um, two people might be interesting, this next part, but why don't you both just take a couple of minutes to share a short version of your story, uh, your faith journey, and what, uh, what you do as far as your ministry for the church goes. How about Tara starts first? Sure. Uh, thanks very much. 
<laughs> uh, my journey begins in a small place uh, called Waiomio, which is in Taitokero, uh, the north part of the North Island. Okay. It begins uh, as one of six siblings uh, who come from a family who uh, um, have a very strong Methodist wetiana uh, background. And um, so growing up in that sort of uh, faith environment where your faith is nurtured and formed at a very early age, mm. it sets you on this particular trajectory um, that leads me to here today. So someone who was born into the church, so to speak, grew mm. up in the faith, was shaped and molded, and whose life has really been defined as one of service in some way, shape or form. Mm. Um, and so therefore having um, had this very early experience it's nice to be able to say I continue to serve the church uh, I'm ordained and I'm newly ordained mm. having only uh, had that happen to me a couple of years ago on the same day as I was ordained I was inducted as general secretary oh, okay. so it's a bit of a double whammy yeah. so to speak <laughs> and very much I'm still finding my way and What's that to threat? Leaning into it <laughs> mm. um, and learning, learning. Very good. And Miriam? Yeah, so I am like you, Tara. I'm, I'm like a church baby from, from day dot. Uh, but perhaps differently from you, I am very de denominationally diverse. Mm. Uh, so I grew up in quite a Pentecostal movement. And when my parents split up, I ended up at a cooperating parish, a little cooperating parish with one parent and a Pentecostal church with mm. the other parent. Mm. And then uh, when I went to uni, um, went to a non-denominational community church, then got married, moved to a new city, went to a Baptist church there. We moved to the UK, went to a C of E church there, moved back to New Zealand, went to a vineyard church, uh, moved to Australia, went to a Salvation Army church there and back in a vineyard church now, and my husband grew up in the Catholic church. So mm. I feel like I almost have a full deck of cards yeah. denominationally, and yeah. um, for me, that's a really rich thing. I actually love that. I, I feel like if it's church, those are my people, mm. uh, regardless kind of of how they perhaps express themselves in worship. I, I probably land more in the holy roly chandelier swinging end of things <laughs> uh, by nature and personality. Mm. Um, and so I have, I have always deeply loved the church, loved it, felt like that's where my people are, felt that that's where I can bring the whole of myself uh, to the table. Um, yeah, so I think that, that probably gives you a little bit of a picture of, mm. of who, who I am, yeah. how I landed. It's really interesting you say that, Miriam, because, um, you know, having grown up in a very clear with a very clear Wetriana or Methodist identity, and yet it is the marae mm. for many Māori, and particularly in rural areas where I came from, where you had that kind of ecumenical experience. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, so we'd go to marae events, and the Anglican priest would be there, mm. Katorika, yep. Presbyterian, Wetriana, and for us there was no sense of this doctrinal division mm -hmm. or even... Yep. Uh, 
what it meant to be as opposed to another. It was very much a sense of community of faith, mm. finding our way in that, which incorporates Pentecostal, mm. um, the AOG church, mm. for example, mm. where I was uh, at. So I think that's a really <coughs> nice comparison mm. with your experience. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and, and certainly for me there's bits missing because of that, because I haven't had a strong trajectory. I'm, I'm, when I'm in a church denomination, I'm never quite sure 100% yeah, what, what all the things they land on are the hills that they've chosen to die sure, on through yeah, history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but for me, yeah, I love that ecumenical space. I'm like, if you're into Jesus, you're my people. Cool, <laughs> cool. cool. Um, and um, speaking of ecumenical, you, you've also, you were also involved with the World Council of Churches, or are involved with the World Council of Churches, Tara? Yeah, so I was sent by the Methodist Church... Um, when I was uh, a rangatahi to go and serve at the World Council of Churches in Geneva in Switzerland um, as the intern for the Indigenous Peoples Programme and mm. what was then their programme to combat racism. Mm. Uh, and so I spent a year there. What an honour, yeah. It was really much, you know, for someone coming from Wyoming <laughs> and then going to Geneva, it was yeah. a very fast learning curve, a bit of a culture shock. Um, but that would serve me in good stead because four years after that experience, I was then invited to go back as a program staff member as part of an education ecumenical formation team. Cool. And I spent 14 years working and living in Geneva as wow. a result of that. Yeah, right on. That's so cool. That's cool, very cool. Okay, so I've just got a couple more um, random questions for you. And I guess it's just off the top of your head first thing because there's two of you just trying to be quick with it. So no, no dilly-dallying around here. Um, Okay, if you were going to get six months to live and travel on any continent, which continent would you choose? Europe, probably. Um, having spent a little bit of time there, I think I did art history as my, in my final year of school, and I just got so excited walking into the churches and mm. seeing frescoes that completely changed the course of, of art sure. in the world. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, because it was beautiful, uh, that's Probably. Yep. That's my that's my gut instinct. Yep. No, cool. we're hot. I don't like the heat. <laughs> <laughs> so yep. I'm going cold. Cold yeah. for me. <laughs> I think I would enjoy being uh, in Asia, primarily because I think um, the plurality that I have seen there, um, but not experienced firsthand, would be a good learning for me. Uh, and I feel um, it's close to us here in Aotearoa. Mm. Mm. So yes, that's a continent yep. I would like. Quite a big continent. It's huge continent. Get more things. <laughs> yeah, that's right. More bang for your buck. Okay, cool. Um, ooh, what would be harder for you, going blind or going deaf? For me, it's always the going. Huh? It would be the going. Okay. Deaf, blind, that would be the going always. Mm. Okay, good answer. Are you going to top that? Yeah. <laughs> well, so we have a deaf community at our church, actually, which yeah. I get to help with, cool. which is really awesome. Yeah. And um, so, just with the worship, I'm not. Uh, my signing's not strong enough to do sermons. Before I overrepresent myself here, mm. I think for me, uh, losing my sight would be harder than losing my hearing. Mm. But because I'm a communicator, I think that would that would be really hard. But I think as a maker and an artist, yeah. Yeah. a loss of sight, yeah, yeah, that would be tough. Would be really hard. But I think maybe having people that I consider my friends who are deaf would would make that an experience and, and perhaps the language of being deaf is more uh, feels closer to my lived experience yeah. so perhaps that it would affect it too cool. um, but yeah good 
Todd. Uh, speaking of, of, of that, and uh, may, this may be more skewed to you, I don't know, but who, who is your favorite artist? And that could include you know, music and filmmakers as well as traditional things like painting and sculpting. And, uh, favorite artist? Are you including music in yeah, it? Would you yeah, say? yeah okay, music, so I have film. Two, yeah. I have two. Okay. My favorite uh, musician and um, singer is Archie Roach. He's Australian. He's an um, Aboriginal. Okay. Marvelous man. Speaks of his experience and the experience of stolen generation, mm. of a, a disconnection, a disenfranchisement from land, culture, etc. Has great resonance. Favorite artist Tameiti. Mm. Um, who's one of our own here, homegrown in Aotearoa, artist, activist, humanitarian, amazing person. Cool. Yeah. Great. Oh, man, I feel like this, <laughs> this is like being at the smorgasbord and only being allowed to pick one thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, Taika Waititi uh, mm. springs to mind because I just, I'm not actually a great Marvel movie watcher but having two teenage sons and husband you know I've been in doc well I don't know not indoctrinated but uh, I think he's clever and he's funny clever. and he refuses to play by the rules hmm. uh, so he's able to take something and be subversive with it and and keep it within its genre but shift it I think that's incredibly clever I love hmm. that he's not apologetic about who he is that he just brings his own voice to the table. Mm. Um, Mary Oliver as a poet, Maya Angelou, mm. uh, both of them, you know, to be, to have that level of words three. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, Daisy Timor, um, who's a local uh, spoken word artist. I cool. think she's incredible. Yeah, give some love. Uh, yeah, so, but yeah, for me, I think, um, you know, and people I know that, that make art and, our artists and are unapologetic about yeah. it. I think, you know, anyone out there making beauty in the world yeah. deserves credit. But yeah, I could, I mean, making me pick one, that's not, Sorry. That's not oh, fair. Right. My bad, my bad. Okay, and finally, um, the, the, the question I ask everyone is, what is something that you once struggled with that you no longer do, and who or what influence helped you grasp it or deal with it better? Who wants to start? Well, I um, I probably approach this from the kind of context of the podcast. Oh, that's if fine. That's okay. Totally fine. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So probably for me, I think I've spent a lot of my life feeling this um, deep call in my heart and in my desire to to speak, to teach, to communicate, and a deep fear that there's not space for me to do that in the church. Mm. That I can do that anywhere else, and I could be brilliant at it anywhere else, but maybe I'm not allowed. Mm -hmm. to do it here and maybe that's breaking the rules so I think that um, has deeply inhabited this this sort of sense of call and not call in my own life mm. uh, in terms of being this person that desperately loves the church and, and loves the people of God even in all of our weirdnesses uh, and what I think has helped me uh, uh, deal with that better surprisingly for me is actually the text of the Bible mm. You know, I think probably I've spent a lot of my life looking for someone to tell me it's okay and to approve it on my behalf. Uh, but for me, it's the text that's taken me to a place of feeling confident. Cool. Yeah, I'd love to unpack that. I'm sure, mm. I'm sure we will. So, cool. Moving on. Tara? Yeah, a little bit in the line of what you were saying, Miriam. I think for me, uh, what is an ongoing 
challenge always is to find my most authentic self mm. and to be in a position where I can share that with another person and have that received in the spirit of this girl mm. and not be second-guessing or be overlaying it with various lenses from other gazes. Mm. And I think it's, it's been important to me, um, and I'm 52 now, um, it's taken a long time to feel comfortable in your own authentic self and having that voice there. And I think that's a particular, perhaps, a dynamic of many women for whom I've mm, spoken mm. with as part of their own journey. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's something I continually reflect upon. Mm. Good. Thanks for that. It's good to know. Um, cool. Just before we get started... Oh, I just want to say, <laughs> well, we kind of have gotten started, but before we get further, I just want to say that preparing for this discussion, this topic, is actually really broad and deals with a lot of personal and a lot of lived experience, as well as theological underpinnings and interpretation and insights. So, uh, this, so, so much so that we cannot cover this struggle completely. But my hope is that having both of you uh, who have very different lived experiences and perspectives and different areas of expertise. Uh, Tara being a Maori woman with a lot of mana and a role leading in the national church body and as a leader internationally for the Church Universal. Um, I remember when we first were talking, you were explaining to me that you're, you're not really too worried about being an apologist for women in the church. That's not something you're down to spend a lot of time and energy on. Your view is more grounded in how we see each other as human beings. Um, that really that really stood out to me. Uh, and Miriam, uh, a Pakeha woman, highly educated and academically trained, working at a theological institution, training students with this sort of passion and fervor, uh, with a master's sort of sort of in the realm of an apologist for women uh, as, as leaders uh, in the Bible and, and can swing a big theological bat around. Um, we want to cover the whole breadth of this topic, but I'm, uh, we, we can't cover the whole breadth of this topic, but I'm hopeful that by having the two of you share your stories and your ideas that we might cover a large chunk of the spectrum. So, okay, let's get into it, shall we? So this is a very broad question, uh, I, I, but I don't know how better way to, to just kickstart the conversation. So just tell me, um, what has your experience in ministry and leadership been like? Paul, um, hmm. Thanks for asking that question. Not many people do, you know. Mm. You take on a role and you jump into it and then you start swimming really quickly and mm. you don't often have a time to reflect on that or have even someone check in and say, how's it going with your ministry? Mm. Uh, it's going well. I'm enjoying it. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of hard work, but that was expected. Yeah. Uh, what was unexpected is the joy and the unwavering delight that comes with learning new things about your ministry that you haven't considered before, um, by having things revealed to you that you may not have seen, and by building, building, building on gifts and graces that are not only yours, but other people around you mm. and coming to this conclusion that yes I am where I'm meant to be um, the good of the bad and the ugly sometimes mm. yeah cool mm. 
I guess I, I feel a little reticent to say that I have experience in ministry and leadership um, because I've, I've not had formal roles in the church. So I preach from time to time. I lead home groups or youth groups and mm -hmm. I, you know, I help with the singing and sign. Um, I'm asked to go and speak at things, but I think um, probably, I guess that's probably more related to my lived experiences that um, I, I feel like the hard thing for me has not been seeing, not seeing what I would hope to see reflected in a way that communicates there is space mm. uh, for women either in the church or in theology. Mm. So, like, it's really beautiful. Labor was 100 this year, and their first cohort was 50-50 women and men. And I, I love that, mm. but I think the reality is often in theological spaces it's still uh, very white and very male. Mm -hmm. And uh, so imagining yourself there, particularly as someone who's perhaps not doing theology exactly the way everyone else seems to do it, imagining yourself there or looking at church leadership and thinking the women who are given leadership titles have often married someone who is in leadership mm. and they may or may not be interested in any kind of leadership and, and looking for the women for whom leadership is actually their calling and it might not be their husband's calling or they might be single, where are they represented in leadership? Mm. So. I think for me, that's probably more of a struggle. I've had really fantastic people in my life, men in the church, who have made space for me, mm. but I haven't been formally invited into those leadership spaces. And I guess I've, I have landed, I guess, in a leadership space at Laidlaw in terms mm. of education, yeah. um, but that's education again, so it's not yeah. theology. Uh, and but I consider that I consider that ministry. Like mm, I mean, I mean not. Yes, like, yeah. I mean, it is a theological institution, but totally. I, it's, it's, but you know the people, the students that you're that you're that you're teaching and yeah. um, you know your 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 you know your life and your experience and your faith is being impressed upon these people, mm. and that is mm. you know that is that and is so ministry. I think that's part of the struggle maybe for yeah, me yeah. around. What makes someone a leader? What makes someone a minister? Yeah. Do they have to have a formal title? Sure. Uh, and perhaps that's part of my own unpacking and undoing. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree with you at all. I think, yeah, I, I am in a position of influence. And I love that I'm working somewhere, again, that's ecumenical. Because it, it, it's something inside of me that longs to serve the church, capital C, mm. in Aotearoa and in the world. That's part of who I want to be in the world. Um, but yeah, so I guess my experience in ministry uh, on one side is really positive in that I've had people who have championed me even when I haven't seen that in action. Um, but on the, on the negative side, perhaps I feel like even in spaces where there's a lot of talk of, of room for women in leadership, there's still not a lot of representation of that. There's sure. still, you know, and it's the same, I think, uh, for Māori and Pākehā spaces, we say we're on a bicultural journey, mm. we say this matters to us, how many brown faces are in our leadership? Mm. Zero, yeah. you know? I mean, that is really interesting, you bring it up, yeah. so I was yeah. in a meeting on Monday, just Monday past, <laughs> and this meeting um, included no more than 10 people, or even less, and there was only one Pākehā person in the group, mm. right? The Pākehā person is a, a senior ordained minister of the church. I'm there in the meeting. And we begin the meeting. And it's very interesting because it was the senior 
Pakia male person in the room who was asked to open and give the karakia. Mm -hmm. I'm the general secretary of the church. Mm. I am the senior ordained person in that room. Mm. And what makes it even more fascinating is that we had gathered to talk about bicultural journey, to talk about tinorangatiratanga and the exercise of that within te hāi, mm -hmm. to talk about race and discrimination. And so often we fall back mm -hmm. into old models mm. and then f use those to frame mm -hmm. what was to be the discussion for the day. Mm. Mm. So what was great is that after this happened, we actually named it mm. <laughs> and called it out mm. and had right. a very interesting reflection on it or not, depending on what side <laughs> you, yeah. you were on. How you felt. But I bring it up because it is a constant daily negotiation. Mm -hmm. So we don't get to a position and then think, okay, done, dusted. Mm -hmm. Every single day you continue to negotiate that mm -hmm. space and mm -hmm. you cannot take it for granted. Mm -hmm. And you need to be vigilant and prepared to name things and mm -hmm. call things out as and when they occur. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be really hard when you're the person in the room who, who's constantly holding that, you know, so um, so it's, you know, a Māori person shouldn't be the only person that ever has to say, where are the Māori people in this leadership team? Just like a woman shouldn't be the only woman to say, why are there no women leaders at this conference? This mm. is for the whole church, but we're only hearing from men. And I think that that sense of, of noticing, of naming, of advocating, has to be broadly distributed across all the people because otherwise I think for me anyway as a woman I feel like if I'm the only person that ever brings it up then I look like the woman with a chip on my shoulder mm. you know and particularly because it's an area for me of like interest like if I want to be a communicator and a teacher and I'm the one saying why are there no women in this lineup of preachers or why are there no you know and so it's the same I think I don't know whether you feel that but that, that thing of like it shouldn't only be the Māori person that needs to call to the fact that everyone else in this room is white, or that we're again centering the Pākehā experience here instead of a Māori experience, that call of everyone holding responsibility for being, for noticing, for naming. Yeah, 100%. And you know what's fascinating about this one art, uh, this, this event that happened, mm. there was only one Pākehā in the room. Everyone else was Māori. So sometimes we need to call ourselves, mm, mm, mm. call ourselves, and have the discussion, mm, mm. and and negotiate that. Mm, yeah. Mm. You mentioned uh, Miriam. You mentioned um, in your in your intro thing that you um, sometimes would preach. That you've been mm. you've, you've been asked to preach and things. So, um, yeah. How does how does that work? Um, how, how how does I guess. Um, yeah, how do you feel about that? And you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm trying. I'm struggling a little bit because you were saying uh, that you don't consider yourself much of a of a leader or in ministry, but you've been actually asked to preach to congregations. So uh, I don't know. How do how do you see that? How do they see that? How has that been received? Yeah. Um, I think I think it is, um, and I think it's good that you're pushing up against that. I think. The naming it thing for me comes very much uh, with perhaps quite 
a Pākehā centric, uh, a sort of male dominated church centric thing of people having titles. Mm. So, unless you are called the pastor or the vicar or the minister, you are, that's your role, and therefore right. you are, and everyone else is just doing their best to serve the church as they can. So, um, so, so it stems from the fact that you're not ordained, you don't have like a title as a minister or a mm, pastor, is it? Yeah, I think that's probably why I'm reticent to do mm. it, and I, I think. I always want to be a bit careful of, you know, overselling myself as <laughs> I'm this and I'm that. I think um, part of it is other people actually acknowledging and naming that and saying, we, we see that, you know, so for you, Tara, you know, your leadership position is something that the church has seen in you and invited you into and, you know, wrap that kōrawai of leadership around you by inviting you to be ordained, inviting you to lead mm. um, as junior, junior secretary. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do, I think though in terms of ministry, definitely preaching is ministry and mm. I think it's, uh, that's probably why I've gone, one of, one of many reasons actually that I've done theology because I want to be a safe pair of hands. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't ever want to stand up and speak at the front on behalf of God and not take that lightly. I yeah, always yeah. want to feel the weight of that responsibility because I think, uh, Regardless of how we should all just realise we're all sinners on the journey, uh, there is a, a mana and a weight that goes with being a person at the front, mm. and people take that more seriously, and that that matters, and it should yeah. it should matter. There should be kind of a holy trembling for me, and mm. being asked to do that, and yet I love being asked to do that too. Mm. So there's that, you know, <laughs> and the. <laughs> It's awesome. In terms of how it's received, generally, really well. Um, but not always, not always. Mm. There are people who um, don't approve of that, and some, some do that more openly than others. Would you, would you wear what you're wearing right now to preach? <laughs> yes. You would? Yes, I would. Yeah, yeah I would. I, I am thoughtful about what I wear, and obviously when you're signing, you have to be really thoughtful too, because yeah. you're actually serving a group of people, right? Mm. And so if you've got something that's really coloured and patterned on, that's like screaming and yelling, because it's it's um, yeah. contrasting with your hand movements. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, there's a mutuality, I guess, in what I want to do in terms of, I want to serve well by thinking about that, but I think there's a part of me that wants to disrupt, that wants to say, a theologian can wear hot pink tights and yeah. a fruit-covered penny, um, <laughs> because actually that, for me, is part of the narrative, is mm. part of inviting people to remember that, that theology is not only yeah. dry, boring essays. Theology is all sorts of things, and so is preaching, and so is being a Christian in the world. So, yes, I would, but I would also want to think thoughtfully about mutuality and mm. how I present myself and that I'm serving a group of people and if what I'm doing is not helping to serve them then I want to be thoughtful but yeah I'm, yeah. I'm turning up in pink tights and gold shoes that's yeah. who I am yeah. and, and I want I guess I want to live in a way that invites you know you Tara, you Jonathan yeah. to actually be who you are to turn up as you are and if I turn up as who I am my hope is that you then feel like there's room for you to turn up as who you are? I love that. I hope that that gives some people some encouragement. I have I have friends and colleagues in ministry, women, who uh, have talked to me a number of times about, um, you know, they had to, they're like you you don't you don't have to think about what you wear when you get in front of when you stand up there in front of people. Like 
I do. Everything, mm-hmm. everything, I, like everything I wear screams to people. Uh, you shouldn't be up there speaking. You know, like they have to think very carefully. Mm-hmm. So um, I hate that for them. Like mm-hmm. that's uh, you're right. And it is it, a thing. It which, totally yeah. is a thing. So right? and Miriam is wearing pink, hot pink tights, gold <laughs> shoes, and a, a, a fruit salad penny. Um, <laughs> so that's why I ask. But um, what about you, what are you, Tara? Do you um, do you consider your role ministry? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you do. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, but I have a slightly different experience in that I was brought up um, in a very, like my parents were very, I'd say, conservative in, mm-hmm. in that way. So you didn't go to the marae without wearing a dress mm-hmm. and was modest, so to speak. And so, for better or worse, I've just carried that with mm-hmm. me. I think also I I'm a little bit different, Miriam, in that. I, I have this fascination with the voice and with words, mm. and not so much about. Appearance. So I like to disappear, mm. actually, mm. and have the spoken word be the focus. Be the focus. Mm. I've noticed that in myself. Mm. Um, it's just part of mm. my upbringing, who I am now. So, so the challenge for me was, and it goes. Yeah, the challenge for me was to find a way in which then the whole of me can connect mm. with this voice and, and with the spoken mm. word mm. Um, and and becoming comfortable in that mm. and then having a preaching style around that because we all have our mm. styles, mm. Yeah, so um, that's that's great. Thanks for that. I think um, the re- yeah, because your you know your role, Tara, um, as general secretary, maybe explain a little bit about what that actually means. Like, where does that take you, and what your responsibilities are for the national church? Um, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, just really quickly yeah. because it's yeah, <laughs> not the most exciting thing. <laughs> um, but the general secretary of the church serves both as secretary of the conference, which is the body as it gathers. Makes decisions. And, and makes yeah. decisions. Um, and then it also has a responsibility to the presbyters or ministers that we have, the role does. Um, it's it's the senior administrator, mm-hmm. that's how I coin it, the senior administrator of the church, the role. Um, and it's a role that when you accept, you accept for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So you have this... Uh, um, time in which you can then begin to use the word, I think, imprint or impress mm-hmm. your yeah. own vision um, to help shape the church that um, yeah. we want to be. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Yeah. So it's very, um, yeah, it's very big picture, long term, uh, discerning together with with other ministers in the church and and along with your vision, what God's given you. Um, that is that is definitely a cool. Um, Role and it doesn't might not sound exciting as a title, but that is a very um, you know, it's a very important role. Um, okay, so both of you have very cool and important roles and um, and you know a very uh, unique set of skills and all that sort of stuff. Uh, why do you think people struggle with with accepting women in certain leadership roles for the church? Um, oh, you know, actually, I'm gonna go back a minute because. You were talking, Miriam, about how you're, you, you're reticent to call it ministry because uh, you don't have a title. Looking over and knowing a little bit of the history of 
women's roles in the church. So very, very early on, women were given roles as you know as um, uh, like certain types of leadership. Like that, um, you know, biblically we see some women suppressed completely. We also see some elevated and given a lot of responsibility. But in the church, women, you know, even if it was just with children, like right, uh, but they started becoming. Um, involved in overseas ministries, uh, you know, missionaries, women, elders, ordained, um, all types of sort of roles before the big one, right? Before they could be ordained ministers, they were given other leadership roles quite, quite handily. Um, but still, I, I think that might f- feed into like your, what you're saying, like, mm. is it really ministry because it doesn't have this sort of title? Of course it is. Mm. Um, but I just, I, why do you think people are reluctant to either recognize forms of leadership for women as ministry um, or, or full stop have a hard time accepting women as, you know, the leader or, you know, the minister? Uh, I think, I mean, I think some of it is around how the Bible's taught and what denomination you've grown up in, mm. what you've seen in your life. Very interesting. I just finished reading recently The Making of Biblical Womanhood oh, yes. by Beth Allison Barr, mm-hmm. and she essentially tracks the history of how the concept or the construct of biblical womanhood is created. Uh, so I, I, I think that um, the kind of what I would call the glass ceiling or the cap on where women can be and how they can minister is actually. Um, sometimes presented as something that it's always been, but mm. actually is very historically based in certain aspects of things happening. And I think, uh, so I think some of it is teaching, mm-hmm. and I think uh, some of it is representation. It's hard to be what you can't see. Mm. So if you've grown up and you've only ever seen a white man ministering at the front of your church, and that's been the only leadership model you've ever had in the church, that starts to uh, be a large portion of your imagination in terms of how you can imagine something to be. And so I think that has a big effect on what people think. I mean, I think there's a couple of classic uh, Pauline scriptures that yeah. have been used uh, out of context, mm. um, but have been sort of whole whole ways of dealing with the role of women in the church have been built around those with a complete, from what I would say, a complete disregard for the rest of Paul's work. Mm. You want to elaborate a little bit more on that? Um, yeah, so I think I said when, when you talked to me about doing this, I was like, don't you come in and ask me to exegete 2 Corinthians <laughs> and Timothy. Um, I, and I said earlier that the thing that made me frightened about, I guess, the call in my heart to, to love and minister to the church was that I wasn't allowed to do that as a woman. And I was like, I'm not, I don't want to upset God. If that's not what God, you know, if God isn't okay with that, then I'll go do that somewhere else. Mm. But the text is what has convinced me. The text is what's brought me back. And I just think if you actually read the whole of Paul's work, you, you can't you can't make an argument that he doesn't have women in ministry. And so um, there's a, an article I was reading today on Romans 16. So in, in Romans 16, Paul names 29 people mm-hmm. uh, that he's sort of greeting or um, you know sending his love to, yeah. calling them beloved, all of this sort of thing. Of those 29 people, 10 are women, and seven of the 10 women are described in terms of their ministry. 
only right. three of the men are described in terms of their ministry. Right. So for me, I guess I've got to that place where I'm like, if someone says Paul doesn't have room for women to be in church leadership or ministry, now this is Paul who entrusts his most important letter, Rome, uh, Romans, to Phoebe, a woman yeah, in true. leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and with that, there's this overlay just tell me if I'm getting way too much no, on that on, thing, on. Uh, that the person who's taking the letter is going to exegete the letter, right? Because right. she's been with him while he's writing the letter. So so if that if that's Romans 16, and we've got 10 women named in that, and seven of them are referred to by ministry titles, and of the other 19 men, only three of them are referred to as ministry titles. It might be that they're the beloved or the friend, but they're mm. not given those ministry titles. How how can we make an argument that Paul doesn't mm. see women in leadership and ministry in the church? So I guess for me, I've got to the point where actually the text, you know, the books like The Making of Biblical Womanhood and Lucy Pepiat's work and, uh, you know, there's so many great people writing into that space who are making a biblical case for that. But the actual text, I feel like I've come to the point with Paul where I used to feel a bit frightened by Paul and perhaps a bit damaged by him. Mm. Uh, where I'm like, I, I just can't make the argument anymore that Paul doesn't. The, the, the body, the whole body of his work makes it very clear that he, that he has women, which means we have to read those specific texts in light of the view of his whole work, in mm. light of the view of his whole ministry, because those are clearly isolated. Now, if they were the, the only work, then, you know, but, but he, he writes a lot more than those two verses. So I guess for me, does that, is that yeah. sort of getting into that? Uh -huh. um, those particular passages which people would use, I would say, as a club yeah. uh, for women um, to keep them in a certain place, uh, to m maintain control, uh, to make sure that they continue to hold positions of power and leadership, that they're not convincing arguments for me anymore. Mm. And that's where I think I love that it's the text that's taken me there. It's not... Mm. It's not the man at the front approving and saying, sure. I'll make room for you, Miriam. And that's been very powerful. So I you know, I would never want someone to think that when you're in a position of power and leadership, particularly as a white man, moving over and making space and naming the leadership you see in a young woman, in a Māori person, in a Fijian person, in a deaf person, naming that leadership you see and making room for it is so important. Mm. But for me, my heart, my heart has to be convinced by the text. Mm. Cool. You know. Yeah. Well, how, how how have you engaged with um, the you know first those you know, first Timothy and Corinthians and Paul's those club texts that she said like um, how have you been raised to in, engage with those or what sort of yeah yeah interesting so they those texts have never been my starting point mm. my starting point has always and exclusively been that we are made, we, meaning you and I, mm -hmm. men and women, and remember that's a social construct by itself, is we are made in the image of God. Mm. So that's always been my starting point. Me too, yeah, me too, yeah. We're made in the image of God. So then the question becomes, and what image have we created ourselves mm. of this God? And what gaze do we then shape that? And then from that, how do we then place a value mm. on you and I, for example, or on Miriam? What is the value I am placing on you, someone who has been made in the image of God? Mm. So that's been always my starting point. Mm. 
I mean, maybe it's convenient <laughs> in that way, right? Because because you take this wonderful theologically moral high ground <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. from which you can then survey everything else. But I think, in a way, I've always found it really empowering. Mm. There's something innately beautiful in that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Know? That we are made in the image. Mm. And um, at moments where there have been struggle and frustration, well, we can continue because mm. of that. Mm. Mm. And I think the broadness of the breadth of texture, uh, te of, of scripture, just mix text texture. and scripture together texture. to make texture, uh, the, the breadth of it affirms again and again and again and again. You know, So we start in Genesis with, with both, both genders being made in the image of God, right? There's no, there's no separation of those things. So I'm like, that's the opening breath. You know, that's how the, and, and, and for me, I guess, there's the really compelling thing for me is that actually Jesus' choice, Jesus' first choice, the son of God's first choice for an apostle as a woman, mm. Jesus could have appeared when the beloved disciple and Peter were in the garden to all of them together. Mm -hmm. Jesus chooses a woman and chooses to say to her, now you, you go and tell my brothers, you go and tell my brothers. And the expectation is, and they'll believe you, right, because you're part of this community. Like, you're part of my community. They know you're my friend. Uh, and so I think for me now, when someone wants to land on Paul and say, by the way, there's no room for you here. You know, go be a, go be a leader or a CEO or a world changer out in the world, but no room for you here. I'm like, cool, so you're happy to work against Jesus here. Like, you're going to put Paul's, one verse of Paul's or two verses of Paul's out of his all of his other work and you're also going to put Paul above Jesus and you're going to put that verse above you know image image bearing mm. equality of image bearing equality of call in the garden right to go to fill to be fruitful to multiply to cultivate to build civilization you're going to take all of that and make these two verses more important I'm like oh you're going to argue with Jesus you're going to argue Paul with Jesus interesting choice Cool, so we're going to go ahead and press pause on the conversation here. This is something we're going to do for all of season two and see how it works. Each episode will be in two parts, so this is the conclusion of part one. If part two is already ready, you'll just go ahead and autoplay into the second half. And if not, well, I promise I won't keep you waiting too long for part two. Just give you a little bit of time to digest what you've heard to this point. So stay tuned, come back and join me for the second part of this conversation. Peace.